0: Good afternoon everyone, welcome to the Institute of World Politics. My name is Dr. Amanda Wan and I'm the director of the China-Asia program as well as the founder of the Asia and Asia Lecture Series here at IWP. For those who are new to the IWP, we are a graduate school of national security, intelligence and international affairs. We have seven master's programs including two online and a doctoral program and um, certificates of um, when we have certificate programs as well as continuing education program. Um, If you're interested in any one of those uh, programs, please um, talk to me after the event is over. I can help you connect with one of our um, uh, recruiting officers. And before we begin the event, please mute um, all of your devices. And today's event is part of the Pearl uh, Harbor Day lecture series in collaboration with The china asia program and today we have um, mr gordon chang who will be delivering a lecture on china is preparing for a war america is not mr gordon chang is the author of the great u.s china tech war and losing south korea his previous books are nuclear showdown north korea takes on the world and the coming collapse of china both from random house mr chang lived and worked in china and hong kong for almost two decades uh, most recently in Shanghai, as counsel to the American law firm, Paul Weiss, and, uh, and earlier in Hong Kong, as partner in the international law firm, Baker & McKenzie. His writings on China and North Korea have appeared in, York, in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the National Interest, the American Conservative, Commentary, National Review, Barron's, and the Daily Beast. He's also a columnist at Newsweek, and he writes regularly for The Hill. Gordon Chang also has spoken at numerous prestigious academic institutions um, such as Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, as well as other research institutions here in D.C. Also, he has given briefings at the National Intelligence Council, the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, the State Department, and the Pentagon. Last but not least, Mr. Chang has appeared before the House Committee on Foreign Affairs and the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. Mr. Chang, thank you very much for having us today. And we look forward to your presentation.
1: Well, thank you, Amanda. And thank you all for participating today. Chinese leader Xi Jinping talks about war all the time. And it's about time that. We take him at his word. Unfortunately, we Americans are not, and this is not a recipe for national survival. China, under the leadership of Xi Jinping, is headed into a very dark phase. He opened up the Communist Party's 20th National Congress last month with a speech of nearly two hours. The work report, as it's called, revealed a, his very disturbing vision of the future. And of course, he, he focused on Taiwan. He did say, um, and, and this is really where I, I think that we should focus on his work, he said, and, and even though there's no nation that threatens China, he warned that the path ahead for China was perilous. Well, because China stands alone, no one is going to attack it. We have to be concerned about the way that he views the future. As I mentioned, his number one foreign policy goal has been to annex Taiwan. Now, for decades, Chinese leaders have said that Taiwan, formerly the Republic of China, must become part of the People's Republic of China. And so the question is, well, what's new? Well, in the past, Chinese leaders were really just going through the motions, Xi Jinping is not. Xi has consistently talked about how Taiwan must become part of the People's Republic during his tenure, which he calls the new era. Quote, we must not allow this problem. He refers to Taiwan as a problem. He said, we must not allow this problem to be handed down from one generation to the next. And this means that he has made the destruction of Taiwan's democracy to be the critical test of his personal legitimacy. In response to all of this war talk, the Pentagon is thinking about war across the Taiwan Strait. American military planners make the brave assumption that if war is to come, it will not come before 2027. Many in the Pentagon think, oh, well, if there is war, it's probably in the middle of next decade. So what we can see is that there is a lack of sense of urgency. There's a lack of sense of urgency not only among the senior civilians like Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, but also among the three and the four stars. In the last month or so, there's been, fortunately, a change in tone. Admiral Mike Gilday, Chief of Naval Operations, the Navy's top officer, um, on October 19th said he couldn't rule out a Chinese invasion of Taiwan this year. Two days before, Secretary of State Antony Blinken admitted that China seems to be on an accelerated time frame. Despite these welcome words, we don't see either the U.S. Navy or the State Department thinking that this is a matter of timeliness. Xi Jinping, on the other hand, does. At the 20th National Congress, he appointed what has now been called a war cabinet. And of course, he's been engaged in the fastest military buildup since the Second World War. More ominously he has been mobilizing the Chinese civilians for war. So for instance, in the beginning of last year, on the first day, um, amendments to China's national defense law came into effect. These amendments take power away from the State Council, which is a civilian central government agency, and hand them to the Communist Party's Central Military Commission, which runs the military. And these powers relate to mobilization of civilian society. In July, a Chinese entrepreneur told me, and he's, he was making civilian products, medical sector. An entrepreneur told me that Communist Party officials came to him and ordered him to convert his production lines in order to make products for the Chinese military. Communist Party cadres had been visiting other factory owners, also with the same directives. And in fact, this entrepreneur told me that a number of once privately owned factories in China are actually now being run by the Communist Party because after receiving these directives from party officials, private factory owners decided that they would abandon their assets and leave China because they did not want to stick around for Xi Jinping's war. Now, Xi is also making other preparations. We have seen these reports in the Financial Times and other places about how the Chinese central government is trying to sanction-proof itself, which is a sure sign that Xi Jinping is planning to do something which is truly awful. But more fundamentally, and as a part of this sanction-proofing effort, we see Xi Jinping trying to close off Chinese society from the rest of the world. Now, China has many badges of modernity. Tall buildings, high-speed rail lines, state-of-the-art stock exchange, but it is not a modern society. Periodically, through Chinese history, rulers have closed off their country when they believe that the pressures from the outside were too great. And that's what's happening at this moment. So right now, what we see is that China itself is driving the decoupling process, as it's called it's driving deglobalization. So, what happens when countries de link? Well, the elites in this town in New York will tell you that high levels of trade promote peace. But you're students of history, and you all know that high levels of trade between England and Germany did not prevent them from going to war in 1914. Samuel Huntington, the late Harvard political scientist, In his landmark book, The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order, actually wrote, it's the direction of trade which is important, not the volume. Economic interdependence only works to keep the peace, he wrote, when countries see that high levels of trade will continue into the foreseeable future. And when they see that their futures are diverging, even at a high level of trade, he said, quote, war is likely to result. That might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but we do know one thing, though, and that is when countries do de-link, trade or otherwise, that the threshold for the use of force declines. Now, the Communist Party in this time is also, um, and we can see this because war does not inevitably result when countries push themselves apart. But we have to be concerned that as China and the United States delink, we have to look at Chinese intentions. And China has not tried to hide its animosity. And on occasion, it is actually gone out of its way to show exactly how it feels. So in May 2019, People's Daily, which is the self-described mouthpiece of the Communist Party, which is the most authoritative publication in China, When People's Daily speak, it's China speaking. May 2019, People's Daily carried a landmark piece that declared a quote-unquote people's war on America. Now, people's war is a phrase that has meaning in Communist Party history, and is of course reserved for um, the enemies of China, the most important enemies of China so we shouldn't be surprised since that May 2019 piece that Chinese propaganda against America has been unrelenting and it has also been malicious. Now we Americans have chosen not to see uh, the China's hatred for us and when we have noticed it we've been perplexed but We must remember that the Communist Party views the United States of America as an existential threat. It views us as an existential threat not because of anything that we say or anything that we do. We are viewed as an existential threat because an insecure political regime, and the Communist Party, no matter how strong it is, always is insecure. We have an insecure political system is deathly worried about the inspirational impact of American values and America's form of governance on China's people. So Xi Jinping, unfortunately, has now looked at the U.S. as a society that he must destroy. And unfortunately, it's not just Taiwan. It's not just America. Xi Jinping has been working to impose China's imperial era system in which Chinese emperors believed that they not only had the mandate of heaven over Tianxia, or all under heaven, but that heaven actually compelled them to rule the entire world. Now, Xi Jinping, in the first decade of the century, before he became General Secretary of the Communist Party, always talked about this, but he did so in subtle ways. But having become Chinese leader, he has now promoted this within Beijing itself. And we see it because he's not the only one who talks about it, but so have his subordinates. So for instance, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, in September 2017, wrote an article in Study Times, which is the influential newspaper of the Central Party School. And in that article, Wang Yi wrote that Xi Jinping's thought on diplomacy and a thought in Communist Party lingo denotes an important body of ideological work. Wang Yi wrote that Xi Jinping's thought on diplomacy made innovations on and transcended 300 years of Western traditional thinking about international relations. So you take 2017, you subtract 300 years, and you almost get to 1648. So Wang Yi, with his time reference, was pointing to the Treaty of Westphalia of 1648, which established the current international system of sovereign states. And when Wang Yi says that Xi Jinping has transcended traditional theories of Western international relations, what he's saying is there shouldn't be any sovereign states, or at least no more sovereign states than China. And Xi Jinping has taken this to ludicrous levels because he thinks he not only should rule the world, he should rule the near parts of the solar system. So in 2018, for instance, we started to hear Chinese officials talk about the moon and Mars as sovereign Chinese territory. That means they think that these near heavenly bodies should be considered like the South China Sea, theirs and theirs alone. And it also means that these officials will try to exclude others from going to the moon and Mars if they have the power to do so. In a revealing um, press conference last year in April, China's space officials revealed the name of China's Mars rover. They said, our rover is called Zhurong, and that's because it's the god of fire. Well, yeah, it's true, Zhurong is the Chinese god of fire, but what these officials didn't tell you is that Zhurong is also the god of war, and the god of the South China Sea. So we have, unfortunately, the most ambitious ruler in history. Now, China's assault on the international system comes at a particularly consequential time. Today, the world is changing faster than our ability to understand it, which means that probably some of our assumptions about the way the world works are going to be obsolete. And because some of our assumptions are obsolete, it means that we do not comprehend the danger. It feels like we have just passed an historic inflection point, transitioning from a period of general calm to one of constant turbulence. And in this new era, war can spread fast, and war can cause unimaginable devastation. So for instance, Vladimir Putin, a desperate Vladimir Putin, has throughout this year talked about the use of his most destructive weapons. In the last six weeks or so, he's actually been positioning his nuke assets. And we have, of course, to worry that he is thinking about a demonstration of his arsenal in a way that history will remember. Now, China has been making its own nuke threats. So, for instance, we go back to July of last year. China threatened to obliterate Tokyo because of Japan's expressed support for Taiwan. In September, the following September, China threatened to destroy Australia because Australia had the temerity to join with the UK and the US in the so-called AUKUS Pact. Periodically throughout this century, Chinese generals and political leaders have made unprovoked unprovoked threats to obliterate American cities. On March 10th of this year, the Chinese military promised quote unquote worst consequences for any country that came to the aid of Taiwan. And also in the last six weeks, we have seen political figures in Beijing amplify Russia's nuke threats. Um, And apparently this is an attempt to intimidate the West especially over Ukraine. The Biden administration, and this is true of others in the American policy community, the Biden administration doesn't want to see the obvious, which is that China and Russia are forming the core of a new axis. And this new axis is roiling the world. I believe that China actually green-lighted the Ukraine invasion. Remember February 4th when Vladimir Putin went to Beijing? and they announced in a 5,300-word joint statement their no-limits partnership. Well, no limits means no limits, because we have seen China, with its elevated commodity purchases, has actually been effectively financing the Ukraine war. But it goes beyond that. So China, for instance, has opened up its financial system to Russian institutions that have been sanctioned by the West. We have seen Communist Party and central government propaganda units amplify Russian notions of the war, basically disinformation. We have seen China put its diplomats in service of Moscow, and China has actually even provided military information, despite warnings from the Biden administration and others, China's actually provided uh, military assistance to Russia. So for instance, there's open source reporting that China has been supplying location data to the Russian military, because Ukraine in the beginning of this war was using DJI drones, Chinese drones, and China knew where those drones were, and they knew where the operators were, and so Russia could take out Ukraine's drone operators. And there have been other reports along these lines. Unfortunately, the United States, which has said that are supplying military information to Russia is a red line, has not done anything. So we have seen this growing partnership between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. These two characters actually met in Uzbekistan in the middle of September at the summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. By the way, you know, Biden and, and uh, Xi Jinping, they met for their first time on the sidelines of the G20. When Putin and Xi Jinping met each other in September, that was their 39th in-person chat. Now, during that chat, Xi Jinping said, well, the world is going to chaos, quote, unquote. Well, yes, it is. The world is heading to chaos precisely because China and Russia are driving the world in that direction. And that brings us to chaos in China. Since the end of last month, there have been extraordinary protests. Um, They first started in Zhengzhou at the plant of Foxconn, the Taiwan subcontractor. At that plant, 200,000 workers or so makes perhaps 50 to 60% of the world's iPhones. So there were the demonstrations then, which have continued into this past week. And then, of course, on Thursday, Thursday, a building in Urumqi, in what China calls the uh, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Um, That building burned. Firefighters couldn't get to the building because of COVID uh, restrictions that had put barriers in the streets. Also, there are reports, unconfirmed, but probably true, that people died because their rooms, their apartments were locked from the outside with wires. And that, of course, caused these uh, protests starting on Friday, continuing through Sunday, with a few of them on Monday, protests across China, east and west, north and south, spontaneous, no coordination, no leadership. Now, people have seen those uh, those videos where Chinese people are on the streets saying, down with Xi Jinping, down with the Communist Party. And that means at least some people in China these days are in a revolutionary mood. Now, I'm sure that you have seen analyses that compare what's happened over the last three or four days to 1989, the Beijing Spring, um, protests in the Chinese capital, plus about 370 other cities, And yes, there are a number of similarities between what's happening in the last couple days with uh, 1989. But I think a better comparison is 1949. In 1949, the nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek fell to the communists. And it fell to the communists because, as the great China historian Yu Yangshir said, The nationals, although they had superior um, firepower, had more resources than the communists could ever marshal. Nonetheless, Chiang Kai-shek fell because he had, quote, lost people's hearts. And it is today the communists that have lost people's hearts. The Chinese people are now openly saying what the rest of the world just is hesitant to acknowledge that China's communist system is the root of the country's problems. The CCP system doesn't work. For one thing, the CCP is run by a strongman. The current strongman is not listening to anybody else in China, and he doesn't have to because of the system. And what we are seeing in the current era of a strongman is China head back to totalitarianism, and anti-Americanism. And as such, it resembles the era of communist China's first strongman, Mao Zedong, who is credited with founding the People's Republic. Now Mao Zedong took a regime that was supposed to be run by a committee and he turned it into a regime run by one man. And with his accumulated power, He then embarked on these zany, disastrous programs like the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. Mao's successor, Deng Xiaoping, he tried to normalize Chinese politics. He did that by institutionalizing things with norms, guidelines, rules, and understanding. And observers, both foreign and domestic, even critics of the regime, gushed over Deng Xiaoping's meritocratic politics. But Xi Jinping, in a Mao-like grab for power, has reversed the process of institutionalization. In other words, he has de-institutionalized the Communist Party. Now, you'll hear many people say, well, you know, Mao Zedong, he was just an aberration in, in China's history and China's communist history. Well, maybe, But we got to remember that China has been ruled by strongman in its first decades and at this current period. So will Xi Jinping, like his hero Mao Zedong, take China off the cliff? Well, we have to look at China's relations with the United States in this regard. And there are two points to consider. First of all, China's militant regime, as we've just discussed, views the United States as an enemy. And second of all, the enemy power, the United States, is not doing a great job these days of deterring the Chinese regime. Well, on the first point, I think that we have to look at China's hostility and we have to ask, well, why? And what are the consequences of this hostility? And I think that we gotta say this is more than just propaganda because I believe that the Communist Party is actually laying the justification with this propaganda It's laying the justification for a strike on the United States. As James Lilly, our great ambassador to Beijing um, in the 1980s, said, China always telegraphs its punches. On the second point, which is the failure of deterrence, well, we can see that it's breaking down and it's evident from what the Chinese regime says about the United States. So, for instance, we go back to August of last year as the Biden administration was withdrawing from Afghanistan in a chaotic manner. And the Chinese, their lesson from all of this was that they believe that the United States, despite all of its power, is incapable. As Kabul was falling, we heard the Global Times, which is unofficial but which is controlled by People's Daily and is often used to signal propaganda lines that the regime is trying to test out. The Global Times said that because the Taliban was able to defeat the United States, that the United States had no hope of deterring China, a mighty China, because we couldn't deal with the ragtag Taliban. The semi-official tabloid also said this about America, quote, It cannot win wars anymore. And then the Global Times then started to think about Taiwan, especially in the context of the fall of Afghanistan. And what the Global Times in an editorial in August that August said was, well, when they didn't say if they said when we invade Taiwan, two things will happen. First of all, the island will fall in hours. And second of all, and this is the important part for our purposes. It said, "The United States will not come and help." In October, Global Times ran an editorial with this headline, quote, "Time to warn Taiwan's secessionists and their fomenters::. Colon, war is real." To make matters worse, it's not just the breakdown of deterrence. It's not just the Chinese hostility to the United States. I believe that Xi Jinping starts, is starting to see a closing window of opportunity to accomplish goals that he considers to be historic. Problem is, China is beset by simultaneous crises. There's the accelerating debt defaults, a crumbling property market a contracting economy, a falling currency, worsening food shortages, a deteriorating environment, and these fast-moving COVID outbreaks. And because of them, we have the, dramatic, the draconian zero-COVID policies, which are paralyzing the Chinese economy even more. And if all of that really weren't bad enough, China sits on the edge of a demographic crisis, the worst in history, the steepest demographic decline in history in the absence of war or disease. Last October, two Chinese demographers wrote a report saying that China will probably lose half its population within 45 years. You do the arithmetic, you take China's TFR, total fertility rate, the average number of children per female of childbearing age. You do the arithmetic, it means China probably is one-third as populous as as it is now Um, come the turn of the century. That means that China, which is now four times more populous than the United States, will, if it's lucky, have maybe 20, 30 million more people than us. In the 1960s, Mao Zedong started the Cultural Revolution when he wanted to deal with his enemies. Xi Jinping, although he looks all powerful now, Obviously, we'll have a lot more apparent enemies in the coming months because his policies are failing. So Mao Zedong starts the Cultural Revolution. What does Xi Jinping do? Well, he announces his common prosperity program, which in broad outline and in substance looks like a 1950s type program. Now, there's a difference between Mao and Xi Jinping. Mao didn't have the power to start World War III. Xi Jinping, though, does. Xi Jinping is known to be the author of China's domestic policies. Those domestic policies are failing. He has nobody else to blame because he's grabbed power from everybody else. I think that the guy needs a foreign enemy. He needs a foreign enemy to distract the Chinese people He needs a foreign enemy to get them to focus on Taiwan, Japan, the Philippines, whatever, but not to focus on him. And leaders, especially militant leaders, who feel they need to have an enemy generally tend to start wars. All of this means is that the risk of conflict with China is far higher than most of us believe it to be. One final point. Jim Holmes of the Naval War College a little while ago told me that this era reminded him of 1937. 1937 was a year in which if you lived in America or Europe, you could sense that something was going to happen. If you lived in Asia in 1937, you were even more worried because that year saw the second Japanese invasion of China that decade. But no matter where you lived in the world, you could not be sure that the worst would happen, that great armies and navies would clash around the planet. As we know, the worst did happen. In fact, what happened is far worse than anyone at the time imagined. Are we at 1937 or are we at 1939? So here's a 1930s type scenario for us to think about. Now that Russia has distracted us, has absorbed all the attention, what about Russia's friends? China, North Korea, Iran, Pakistan, Algeria, they could take advantage of the situation to move against their victims, which would be Taiwan, Japan, India, the Philippines in the case of China, South Korea in the case of North Korea, Israel in the case of Iran, India in the case of Pakistan, Morocco in the case of Algeria. This is how we can have wars at both ends of the Eurasian landmass and in North Africa at the same time. So this looks, yeah, you know, the calendar tells us, yeah, this is 2022. But it sure feels like 1937 or 1939. So we must rebuild our defenses. We must reestablish deterrence and we do not have a moment to lose. Thank you.
0: Well, Mr. Chang, thank you very much for such an insightful um, presentation. And we'll take questions now. And, and please um, wait until we can deliver you a mic. That
1: would be Which one? Yeah,
0: so. Do we have an extra mic, no. Joshua? No. Okay. Um, I yeah. I have yeah, all right, then you can get this one to answer. Okay. Let me just deliver the mic. Yeah, okay. I see one hand over there. Could you pass? Thank
2: you. Is this how I use it? Um, uh, I just have a quick question. You mentioned that the Communist Party is an insecure political regime. So my question is, where do you think this insecurity comes from? Do you think it's from the regime or the culture? Also, do you feel that insecurity is only targeted target to the United States or to the entire Western country? Thank you.
1: Yeah, great question. Um, I think that general and general totalitarian regimes are insecure. Because although they do look strong from the outside, they know that they stay in power not because of love and devotion of people. The Communist Party is well past that. Um, they believe that they stay in power because of their ability to coerce, imprison, intimidate, and that's one of the reasons why you know this looks. Um, if you go back to 1989, you know those protests were widespread um, all across China but the protesters almost no protester then wanted to get rid of the communist party remember what the protesters wanted they wanted premier li pong out of the way because he was a hardliner and they wanted the party to open up a little bit but there was buy-in among everybody in chinese society or virtually everybody in the communist party rule but today it's not the case because even though those protests started spontaneously, you know, the first one was Friday, they started talking about bringing down the Communist Party right away. And so you can see why Xi Jinping might feel a little bit insecure when he hears people chanting, Xi Jinping, step down, Xi Jinping, step down. And so um, I think that it's the nature of the political system um, more than anything else. And and political scientists can, can debate this, but um, as, a political, as a totalitarian system ages, it realizes it stays in power because of force. And, and that leads to all sorts of um, very unhappy conclusions because they realize that their power is military. And it's not just domestic power, it's also their uh, uh, standing in the world is based on, on their military. So I think it's the nature of the political system but, you know, I'm hesitant to say that because this is a room of political scientists who have spent decades studying this very particular issue because it's such a critical one. And thank you for raising it. So I'll have to defer to a lot more knowledgeable people here. Um, your second part of your question about is this directed at just the United States? Um, no, because um, this is a question of democracy versus communism. And we know that because of the first decade of uh, first. Sorry. The first uh, months of the pandemic, remember what Beijing was saying. It was saying that its ability to control um, coronavirus was showed that its form of governance was superior to not just American democracy, but democracy in general. So they made that connection themselves. So any country that is democratic is a threat to Communist Party rule. And the biggest threat, of course, is Taiwan because Taiwan is 110 miles away. This is the South Korea, North Korea problem, um, paradox for North Korea. They have, you know, we're all Koreans. The people in the South are so much more prosperous. And if you're in North Korea, you say, well, why me? Um, what's, why, what's wrong with my political system? The same thing for China and Taiwan. Because remember, people, um, the Communist Party, and people in China in general, believe that the people in Taiwan are Chinese. Now, the people in Taiwan, as a sidebar, don't think that they're Chinese. You can see self-identification surveys. You know, these days, upwards of 80% believe that they're Taiwanese only. Um, And it's the number for people who believe that they're Chinese only is south of 5%. So the people in Taiwan don't think they're Chinese. But the people in China do. And so here you have the Communist Party say, well, You Chinese cannot govern yourselves, and that's why you need the dictatorship of the proletariat. But if you look at Taiwan, there's 23 million, 24 million people there who are happily governing themselves, and by the way, who are very prosperous, and who are held up around the world as a model government. So of course you have to destroy the Taiwan government because it is a critical threat to China. So it's not just the United States. The United States has the disadvantage, of course, of being um, the world's most powerful society. So obviously, they've got to get rid of us. But it's more than just us. It's our form of governance. And there are other countries around the world that are democratic, which means there are other targets for China itself. And thank you for those questions, because those are really important ones.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, It was very insightful. My question is, could you speak at all to the military readiness of America's allies around China? I think especially of South Korea, of Japan, of India, because one of America's great advantages for many, many uh, centuries has been its partners around the world. And that, to me, would be an important element of this growing competition between China and America and her allies. Thank you.
1: Yeah, that's important. Um, You know, we often think of the China-U.S., controversy is their military versus our military but it's you're right Um, so for instance take the number one target of China which is Taiwan Um, I think that Chinese military planners have at least the Japanese military planners have come to this conclusion and the Chinese must have as well and that is for China to successfully invade Taiwan they first have to blockade it and for any blockade to be successful they have got to include sovereign Japanese territory inside the blockade line, because there is an island, uh, Yonagumi, which is China's uh, sorry, which is Japan's um, most southern inhabited island. It is 58 nautical miles east of Taiwan. On a clear day, you can see Taiwan from Yonagumi, and China cannot blockade um, Taiwan by drawing a line between Yonagumi and the main island of Taiwan. It just doesn't work militarily. So the Japanese know that. And that's why Japan, over the last seven, eight, maybe 10 years, has been pre-positioning its military and moving it south. In other words, no longer as concerned about the Russian threat in Hokkaido in the north, but more concerned about Okinawa and the Ryukyu chain. Um, because they realized that they would be drawn into a conflict regarding uh, Taiwan. And that means that Japan's also had to do what China's been doing, and that is um, changing, reconfiguring its military away from the army towards the Navy, towards the Air Force. Um, So yes, Japan would be drawn into it. Um, And Japan is very capable self-defense forces, um, clearly. But the question is, they haven't been tested, so we really don't know. Um, when you look at Taiwan, um, they probably have a lot of will, but um, for various reasons, including the United States purposely keeping Taiwan weak. Um, you know, I, I think the Chinese are probably right when they think the Taiwanese won't last very long after a sustained bombardment from China. Um, you know, We have prevented them, the ta- people in Taiwan, from having the tools that they need um, you know, we've sold them sometimes purposefully the wrong things because defense contractors want to sell them stuff that they don't really need. And also, Taiwan's at fault for this because they buy, they purposefully buy stuff that's, that they don't need as well. So there's, uh, Taiwan is not nearly as strong as it could have been. Um, Australia, you know, they don't have submarines worth a damn, which is the reason why they have the AUKUS PAC. Um, India um, has a very good military. They've been um, making hash of the Chinese soldiers in Ladakh. But the point is that um, these are militaries which are scattered and which have not really been working in a coordinated fashion. Oh, And South Korea, Um, South Korea is, I think, complicated in the sense that um, after Moon Jae-in, the previous president, appointed a lot of uh, general officers who probably were more political than uh, capable and who certainly had um, less than helpful attitudes about North Korea. So we don't really know how effective South Korea would be in terms of uh, fight. Um, I think they're a pretty good military, but they do need a lot of rearmament, and they do need to learn to coordinate better and to have better... Um, You know, all sorts of better things, including the ability to, um, not just just their hardware, but their software. Um, So there there are a lot of issues in this. And and of course, Japan and South Korea, Japan's a US ally, South Korea's a US ally. But as we all know, Japan and South Korea are not allies. As a matter of fact, under Moon Jae-in, they viewed Japan as the number one threat. They didn't view China or North Korea as a threat. So you have problems there. Uh, of coordination. Now, of course, there's the Quad, um, which is the United States, Japan, Australia, India. Um, the Quad looks a little ailing recently because of India's um, unhelpful support of Russia in the Ukraine war. Um, and there's a lot of things that go there that uh, I think the our alliance relationships in, in Asia are not as strong as they have to be. Remember, and, and we can talk about forever on this, and I'd love to talk forever about it, but I'm wearing out your patience. But the one thing that is important is that the United States, you know, with the G20, and this is symptomatic, President Biden spent a lot of time with Xi Jinping. That was time which is very valuable for an American president on the sidelines of a multilateral event. He should have been spending it with Quad members. He should have been spending it with potential American friends and allies. We have this over-focus on China where we should be thinking about our partners, because those partners are the ones we're going to need when things really get bad. So this is a failure of, a, and, and I'm not just criticizing Biden, because obviously Trump did this, and Obama did this, and Bush did this, and you know you could sit down the line. But this is a failure of American diplomacy to realize we need to talk to our friends and allies and partners because we have interests with them, and those interests are permanent, despite what old British prime ministers might have said. Um, because we are democratic. Thank you very much for raising that issue. We are democratic, and uh, we do work together. We might quarrel on, on small issues, but on the big issues, we're all together, and we need to reinforce those relationships. This is why I bring my wife, because she corrects me. Because I'm smarter <laughs> than you. contrast with how China thinks about alliance system. Yeah, the interesting thing is that China doesn't have an alliance system. And we Americans, being very American-centric, of course, say, well, that makes us stronger. Uh Uh-uh. You know, the Chinese look at this and say, allies make you weaker. And that's why China has only one formal military alliance, and that's with North Korea. So the Chinese believe that they can act alone, and they will be more effective in doing so. I think they're wrong, but it just shows you a very different mentality in Beijing than in Washington and other Western capitals.
2: Hi, Mr. Chang. Thanks for a great speech. Uh, This is uh, Karen Xue, a reporter from VOA. Uh, My first question is regarding uh, DOD just released its report today on China's military power. And they say that China is probably going to have 1,500 nuclear warheads by 2035. Uh, So what is the fundamental purpose of their nuclear expansion, and how should U.S. respond? And uh, also, uh,
1: this report- I always forget two questions, so let me answer the first one first. the purpose for that is to intimidate others. And, and we know that because you know China officially has a first, an official no first use policy. But all of these threats that they have been making, and these threats go back into the early years of this century, these threats are intended to intimidate us. And so that's the, what the Chinese see. Remember Vladimir Putin has been very successful in getting the United States not to support Ukraine to the full extent that we should because we're worried about Russia's use of tactical nuclear weapons. So um, it's working. And and remember, um, you know, it's not just China making threats. Earlier this year, North Korea for the very first time threatened the first use of nukes. You know, North Korea for a very long time, even before it had nuclear weapons, would threaten the use of nukes, but they would always say it in this context. Yes, we will kill you, but only if we're attacked first. This, I forget which month it was, but it was in the spring where Kim Jong-un said, we reserve the right to use nuclear weapons first. And that, and he actually repeated that or someone repeated that recently. So this is, they, they can see Putin's getting away with it. So the Chinese make nuke threats on their own. The North Koreans are now in the business. God knows who else is gonna join in the party. Um, But clearly, um, you know, we have opened the door because once you get intimidated, then everyone thinks they can get away with it. So that's why China's building all these weapons. They don't really need them, Um, but they're happy to build them. Your second Um,
2: question. Also, this report said there's no imminent um, invasion, risk of invasion of Taiwan, which equal uh, uh, Biden's prediction after meeting Xi last month. So uh, is this another misjudgment of Xi's intention, or should we continue to make our Taiwan policy based on this judgment? And what should we do uh, urgently right now to make sure uh, China will be defeated in the Taiwan war?
1: John Culver, who's at the Atlantic Council and who uh, wrote a piece, which is on the Carnegie Endowment website, said, um, oh, don't worry about um, China invading Taiwan because we'll have at least six months or a year's notice of because we will be able to notice what they're doing and make preparations in response. I think that that added, I think that that assessment is wrong because I think that the first thing that China will do, if it should decide to attack Taiwan, we won't know it for a very long time. So for instance, um, China could very well spread a pathogen on the island, and we wouldn't know it for weeks, maybe months. We might not be able to figure out the origin for a very long time. Remember, you know, we're now, what, year three or year four of the coronavirus pandemic, and we still don't know where um, SARS-CoV-2 came from. And we're still arguing about it, as you heard from Dr. Fauci's comments on the talk shows on the weekend. So um, I think that um, we very well might not know about what's going on for a very long time. And we've also got to remember that China is developing what it's called specific ethnic genetic attacks. These are pathogens that will leave um, Chinese people immune, but sicken and kill everybody else. They're obviously thinking about this along these lines because these are civilization killers. Um, we know there's a technology where you can develop a weapon targeted to a single individual. I mean, with DNA analysis, this can be done. So we have to assume the Chinese are doing it. And by the way, the question is are the Chinese that malicious? Well, damn right they are. I mean, we don't have 100% visibility into where SARS CoV 2 came from, whether it was a zoonotic transfer or whether it was an engineered pathogen. But we do know something 100%. We know 100% that once this disease got out into the Chinese population, that the Chinese leadership, Xi Jinping, um, decided to deliberately spread it beyond China's borders. They lied about contagiousness for weeks. They knew that SARS-CoV-2 was highly transmissible human to human, but they went on a campaign to tell the world it was not. And at the same time that they had decided to lock down their own country, they were pressuring other countries, including the United States, not to impose travel restrictions and quarantines on arrivals from China. You put those two things together and the inescapable conclusion is that China deliberately spread this disease. which means that the 1,079,000 Americans who have died from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, those are murders. 6.6 million people have died from this disease outside China. That should never have occurred. That disease should have never left Wuhan and central cities in China. So the Chinese aren't malicious enough to do it, and we have to have a Pentagon to think like Chinese. We have American war planners who think that Chinese war planners think like American war planners. Well, we know from the title of the Unrestricted Warfare, that 1999 book by then two Chinese Air Force colonels, that China thinks that it can do anything. Combine any types of warfare that they talk about in that book to destroy an enemy. So we need to think about this. I think the people in the Pentagon should stop reading Graham Allison's The Citizen's Trap, and start reading Unrestricted Warfare. Quick question. Xi Jinping, not too long ago, initiated an anti-corruption campaign, most likely to get rid of some of his political rivals. Did that in any way resonate, in your opinion, with the people that he was actually doing something for their benefit? I think that the Chinese people understood that um, Xi Jinping's corruption campaign was really politically motivated. But nonetheless, I think it had great support among the Chinese people because they realize, they they start with the assumption that all Chinese officials are corrupt. It's good to punish them. And so um, I think that he had um, popular support for that. Now that was before COVID-19. Um, people in China are not talking about corruption um, as much. They're talking about the lockdowns and there, you know, other issues. But um, I think that that propelled Xi Jinping. You know, the question is: Remember, he in 2012 he inherited a consensual political system. You know, in 2012 power was shared among the Politburo Standing Committee and the wider Politburo. And no Chinese leader ever got too much credit or too much blame because this was uh, decided with everyone's consent. What Xi Jinping did was he he became very popular because of the anti-corruption campaign. He not only eliminated rivals by jailing them, but he also, I think, got the popular support, which means he became extremely powerful. And when he became extremely powerful, then he started doing things which then created all the problems. And he now has full accountability for them. But the point is that um, the way he rode to power, uh, unprecedented power, um, maybe even more powerful than Mao in, in some of Mao's years, was because um, he attacked corruption.
0: We'll take a few more questions um, from the in-person um, attendees before we start taking questions
1: from the virtual attendees. <laughs> Hi, thank you very much. Chris Hayes pleasure the Fletcher School. Uh, Could you, we're probably a lot of uh, like minds in this room, but uh, for for those maybe watching at home or anywhere else, could you try and steel man the argument that's also out there that China's really far away, and why should we care? And they just want to control East Asia. They probably can't really hurt America. Can you just try and steel man that, and then also respond to that the strongest possible argument? That's a great question. Um, I mean, when you, when you look at the mentality of Chinese leaders, um, they don't talk about conquering Europe, right? So, I mean, that, that buttresses the argument that China is looking only to extend its power over areas which were once ruled by Chinese leaders. So, you know, one, one can say that that's right. And one can say also that Chinese, forget about Xi Jinping and the Politburo, so put, let's say, 26 Chinese people off to the side, and all the rest of them basically just wanna make money, which is really the argument. And because they wanna make money, they think like us. They have the same incentives as us. And because of that, they will be a break on those 26 or so who are trying to bedevil us. And indeed, one could argue that a large portion of Chinese society right, does think that way. I think they think that way. You know, engagement of the United States and China uh, you know, has been a complete failure with regard to uh, senior Chinese leadership, but it has changed Chinese society, no question about it. And if we need any proof of that, it's what's happened over, you know, since Friday. We have changed Chinese society and and we can argue that because prosperity is so important for the Communist Party, because of their leadership, depends on it that we don't have to worry too much, that eventually we'll be able to work things out. i that's a wonderful argument. Um, and it very well may be right, but I don't subscribe to it. And I don't subscribe to it because, um, for a couple of things. Um, and one of them is just the way dictators operate in general. Forget about the Chinese ones. You know, um, did it make sense really for Hitler to attack the Soviet Union? I don't think so. I mean, did it make sense for Japan to attack the United, this is Pearl Harbor lecture day, right? So December 7th, 1941, did it make sense for uh, Yamamoto to sail across the Pacific and attack Pearl? No, but that's in the nature of hardline militant regimes. And unlike Japan, Um, And maybe unlike the Third Reich, the Chinese actually believe that they should rule the entire world. Um, I mean, they have this notion of, um, you know, this irredentism, which um, is really striking because, you know, they once talked about Taiwan. They always talked about Taiwan. Um, They talked about Hong Kong and Macau. And now, what are they talking about in Beijing? They're talking about Siberia and the Far East because of the treaties in the 1860s. Now that's really bad history, by the way, because doesn't. the Chinese did not cede that to Russia. It was the Qing Dynasty. In other words, people who were considered not Chinese at the time, who conquered China, these are the guys who ceded Vladivostok and the rest of the Siberia, but that doesn't matter. You know, in, in Beijing right now, they're actually talking about that. And they're also talking about Okinawa. Um, and so, you know, the list goes on and on. And that's why I think that it's just in the nature of aggressive regimes to think beyond them. It's powered in China's case by two particular things which make the situation worse. One of, the, one of them is, you know, they, they think of Tian And the other, they're communists. You know, we often forget, but communism believes that there should be a worldwide system where, you know, the state withers away and workers live in a paradise. So you mix communism and, you know, Chinese imperial era um, notions of Tianxia and just the general aggressiveness of militants, and you've got a very toxic brew. So where are those guys going to stop? What's important for us right now is that we have a good portion of our supply chains in China. Now, I particularly don't, I have an iPhone. I don't particularly care if you know the Zhengzhou plant disappears off the face of the earth and Apple is never able to sell another iPhone 14 ever. Not a biggie for me, but it is a biggie that China does actually um, control about 90% of our pharmaceuticals and our active pharmaceutical ingredients. So that is a critical vulnerability. And that's why we really care about China. We care about China because um, a couple of other things. Um, since the late Um, 1800s, American defense planners have um, thought our Western defense perimeter is off the coast of East Asia. Taiwan's in the center of that. That's right next to China. Um, We care because China is attacking democracy and the American democracy. So our form of government is in the crosshairs almost every day with communist propaganda. And we care because... You know, God knows Taiwan. After the fall of Kabul, has been considered the test of American credibility, so we care about that. So there are a lot of reasons why we care about China. You know, if China were to leave us alone, yeah, we could we could we could let them do whatever they want, but they're not leaving us alone. And so the issue here is, um, it's not like we're going abroad to find monsters. The monsters are coming over here. And remember, the Chinese are attacking us on our own shore. So for instance, in the 2020 campaign, China actually tried to foment violence on American streets. And they did that through a number of means, both um, uh, openly and surreptitiously. That's more than just subversion, that's an act of war, trying to bring down our government. Fentanyl. China's behind, the the Communist Party is behind the fentanyl gangs, Um, that's another conversation, but clearly they want to kill Americans with fentanyl. That's 77,000 Americans who died from overdoses of illegal Chinese fentanyl last year. Um, And this year the number is gonna be higher. So how can we say that they don't affect us? They do.
0: I'll take two more from attendees in person. Gentleman in the back. Okay. You mentioned earlier on the interview about decoupling and how China is doing that as a strategy. But my question was how does that reconcile some their globalization
1: efforts, such as the Belt and Road Initiative or the Confucius Institute's being spread across the world? Could you give a couple of yeah, that's that's a paradox. Um, China wants to deal with the world on its own terms, and those terms are not reciprocal. Um, so, um, China wants to reserve the Chinese market for itself, but China wants other countries to be open to China's exports. So, uh, it's you know, reciprocity is not a term that um, you know has great resonance in Um Beijing wants to control the world because they believe the world is theirs. So of course, you know, Belt and Road gives them the opportunity to do that. I've never, with a couple of exceptions, I've never really been concerned about Belt and Road because this strikes me as China building a lot of infrastructure which is uneconomic. And so therefore these projects were gonna go belly up anyway. And debt trap diplomacy traps the debtors, but it also traps creditors. And I think China is starting to Rethink Belt and Road because they don't have the resources to continue as they have, as they first thought in 2013 when they announced the Belt and the Road. The one exception is that um, when projects go, um, have to be renegotiated, and China takes over ports, for instance, those ports can become military bases. And the one uh, project that really concerns me um, is in the Bahamas. So we're talking about uh, Freeport, where there's China's building a $3.4 billion container port, which strikes me as completely uneconomic, um, which means it's probably going to be a Chinese military base um, in the not too distant future, which by the way is 90 miles east of Palm Beach. So I think we are concerned about something like that. But I, I believe that in general, China is overextending itself. This is Paul Kennedy's imperial overreach and the Chinese are overreaching um, because they do believe that um, you know, their time has come. You know, if you go back, I, I'm not sure what Xi Jinping is thinking on um, November 29, 2022, but if we go back five years, you know, he always had the belief that the United States was in terminal decline and that uh, China was gonna dominate the world. And he thought that by the way, because we all, we all thought that as well. Um, But, um, you know, when you have that mentality, you know, you think you can do things like Belt and Road. um, And you think that you can deal with the world on on reciprocal terms. And unfortunately, we have given him the notion that he can by allowing China to engage in trade in a predatory manner. So this is our fault as much as it is his fault. We have taught him to be aggressive. And um, by the way, you didn't ask it, but once you start thinking about what's happening in China, you know, this whole notion of, you know, China's going to rule the world. Well, China's not going to rule the world, as we can see. But it's like troubles in Russia, troubles in China, troubles in Iran. You know, the United States seems, you know, we can all say that the United States is in decline. But in relative terms, we're gaining ground on every other major power in the world, with the possible exception of India. So this is a really good time for the United States, but it's a bad time for China because closing window of opportunity is something that is running through the minds of Chinese policymakers, forcing them to act sooner rather than later and going back to this whole notion of war and pushes them to do things which we think would not be in their interest, but which they see the world in very different terms. If you think that the United States is going to be dominant in 10 years, more dominant than it is now, you got to act. you got to act before that happens. I have a comment and a question. I have to take, have to take exception to your uh, remark that much of the world looks on Taiwan as a model when the country has diplomatic relations with only a handful of countries. Uh, the question is, uh, reportedly we, we are looking forward looking to trying to reestablish our bases. Subic Bay in the Philippines. If that's true, would that be a, a sign that we are preparing for war? Yeah. On the first point, um, Taiwan has diplomatic relations with what, fifteen countries now. Um, that's not a that's not a reflection of what countries think of Taiwan. That's a reflection of Chinese intimidation, um, and so I, especially uh, you know with COVID. Um, Taiwan has had remarkably few infections and deaths, so it's 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 viewed as a model in you know disease control. It has a vibrant democracy. By the way, they run elections where nobody questions the outcome because they do it by paper ballot, and you know they 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 figured out a few things that we Americans could learn from. So um, I know I do think that the world views Taiwan as as a model in many respects. Um, the question about Subic. Um, yeah, I think we, you know, we want we want to be back in Subic. I, I suppose we would love to be at Clark as well. Um, and yes, we are preparing for war, as we should. Um, this is not something like the United States is looking for war. This is something where we see an evident danger. The Chinese tell us that they want territory under the control of others. The Chinese are engaged in very dangerous intercepts in the global commons. Um, The Chinese have invaded India in 2020. Um, The Chinese seized Scarborough Shoal in 2012. I mean, how can we not prepare for war? I mean, my criticism is we're not doing enough to prepare for war. You know, on the question of Suvik, um, yeah, you know, we could use another naval base because we know that the Chinese missiles are going to destroy most of what we have in the region in the first half hour of any conflict. So we need more diversity, um, diverse uh, bases. We need a greater number of bases. Great. Uh, Mr. Chen, could you
0: quickly take three questions from our virtual
1: attendees?
0: Of um, So this question is actually from one of our prospective students. Hello, I have a question. Mr. Chang mentioned that Xi Jinping's main underlying goal while in power is to annex Taiwan. Do you think Russia's invasion of Ukraine and U.S. NATO's lack of direct action is encouraging Xi Jinping to take military action in Taiwan within the within the next few years? And what can we do as a state to do to combat such a thing from happening without military force, or is it possible to do so without military force?
1: Um. We Americans have this narrative that, um, well, Ukraine has put up heroic resistance. So um, that is giving China second thoughts, because they're thinking, well, Taiwan, people will put up heroic resistance. And that's a nice narrative, Um, makes us feel comfortable, but I'm not so sure that's the case. Because, you know, the Chinese leadership think that uh, a substantial portion of people in Taiwan will welcome them with open arms. So I, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure that, uh, that the resistance of the Ukraine people is actually deterring Xi Jinping. I think that the Chinese are taking different lessons out of um, the Ukraine war. One of them is, you got to remember that the coalition that was arrayed against Vladimir Putin, uh, United States, 27 nations of the European Union, and Great Britain. Last year had an economy that was 25.1 times larger than Russia's and yet we failed to deter a far weaker state. Uh, And I think that um, the Chinese view that as a failure of American and Western diplomacy. And so they're probably thinking, well, if they can't deter Russia, how could they possibly deter this grand, mighty China? Um, The other thing is they look at sanctions And they can see the sanctions have had an effect on on Russia, but they also see Russia continuing the war uh, uh, under the sanctions regime. And they probably think that they can get away with sanctions imposed by the West if we dare to impose sanctions on China in the first place. So um, that seems to me, when you look at on balance what's happened, um, I'm not so sure that they view this as something that inhibits them. Uh, from an invasion of Taiwan. Um, we don't know um, exactly what they think, but that would seem to me the lesson when you start to read some of the things that senior Chinese analysts have been saying. Um, you know, in terms of how to deter um, China, I think it's mostly non military. Um, I don't think that China would invade Taiwan if they felt that the United States would come in and help Taiwan. Um, And the reason is, even if they thought they could take Taiwan over our military's help, they still wouldn't do it, um, I think. And the reason is the Chinese regime is very casualty adverse. Chinese propaganda has been that uh, China has a significant military advantage over the United States because we're casualty adverse and the Chinese are not. But that narrative is wrong. I believe that it's, it's completely got it backwards. And so the reason is, on the night of it was June 15, 2020, China launched a surprise attack against India um, in Ladakh. And that night, um, 20 Indian troopers were killed. And New Delhi immediately announced the death toll. China didn't say anything until February of the following year. And then China said, Four, four, four Chinese troopers were killed. But TASS, the Russian news agency, came out with a press release which um, said 45 Chinese died. And that 45 number corresponds with what India believes um, China's losses on that night. So that shows you that China is extremely casualty averse, And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, and part of it is because you know, in a one-child society, um, the death of any child becomes so much more important because that ends the bloodline for a family. And that for, I come from a Chinese household, I can tell you how important this is. Um, you get a lot of pressure to get married, have kids and all the rest of it. Um, so I think that when you start to look at the, a one-child society, the Communist Party knows that a military misadventure abroad would be unpopular. So even if they thought they could take over Taiwan um, over uh, and defeat the United States, uh, I'm not so sure they would do it. Which means come to a conclusion that the way that you stop China from invading is you have the president of the United States in front of the cameras specifically say that the United States will defend Taiwan if it's attacked by China. And to say maybe a few other things. I think that's probably sufficient. Uh, Now, President Biden has said that four times um, to in media interviews. But remember that four times his subordinates have contradicted him. Now, this is a constitutional crisis, by the way, because our Constitution doesn't say the White House press secretary is the one charged with making foreign policy. But obviously, you know, you had uh, White House press secretaries, defense secretaries, State Department press secretaries actually contradict Biden. And I think the Chinese see the disarray in the American system. So it needs to be clear. Biden needs to say, I will defend Taiwan, and we have to have at least 48 hours of silence from his subordinates. And if we can do that, then I think we'll be okay. Other things we can do, we can offer Taiwan a mutual defense treaty. We can pre-position military supplies on the island. We could have U.S. Navy port visits. You know, China doesn't want port visits with the U.S. Navy. say, fine, fine with me. We'll send them to Kaohsiung instead of Hong Kong. So we do simple things like that. I think the Chinese back off. Yes, they'll huff and puff, but I don't believe that they're in a position to invade, and I don't think that they would invade. And in any event, it's time that we start supporting our allies rather than treating them as um, pariahs.
0: Thank you. I'll take one more question, so that way I can give you five minutes back in case if you want to talk, um, come talk to Gordon Chang ask him questions directly. So the last question from um, one of our virtual attendees is China continues to invest in Latin America. Several Latin American countries have recently elected far-left presidents. Do you think China is active in Latin American politics via influence operations or otherwise?
1: Yes. Um, we're Americans, so we've entitled... We believe that we're entitled to be oblivious. Um, And what's happened is for the first time ever, um, all the major economies in Latin America are now controlled by progressives who are anti-American, who are closer to Beijing than they are to Washington. And this is not an accident um, because um, China has been very active in, for instance, our elections. And, and they're interested and active not only in general elections, but in primaries as well. So um, we have to assume that they've also been involved very much, for instance, in the Brazilian election where Lula is, um, you know, when he was president, was very close to China. um, um there were strained relations. There is some indication that the Chinese were messing in that election. And um, given China's extensive... Diplomatic and economic ties in the region. Um, we have to just assume that they were very much there. A um, number of people have written, um, we, we know a lot about uh, China's pulling around in our elections. Um, and um, I'm not an expert on this. Evan Ellis of the Army War College and Joseph Humeyer of the Security Center for Secure Free America. These guys know 100% about all this, but um, they talk about how China's been very active in the political processes in these countries. And that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but that's one of the reasons for the pink electoral wave that has completely taken over Latin America. Well,
0: let's um, give up. Well, Mr. Chang, thank you very much um, for such an insightful lecture as part of um, IWP's Pearl Harbor Day lecture series. And again, um, thank you all for coming and if you have any questions about one of our programs, please come talk to me and I'll be happy to answer any of your questions. Thank you.